What I'd like to do this morning together in the time that we have is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, I I got a chance to sit in on your town hall meeting. It was very exciting to hear everything that's going on, but it's busy. There's, there are a lot, there's a long to-do list to move in. There's, there's lots of logistics to take care of. And in the midst of all that business, sometimes it's easy to lose sight on Jesus. It's, it's interesting. It's ironic that sometimes when ministry is as, as, at its busiest, that's when you most lose sight of Jesus. Sometimes on the race of life, so much is going on around us. We're so busy running and running and running, we lose sight of Jesus. And Hebrews 12 says, let us run the race marked out for us. How? fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning with you together is to fix our eyes on Jesus via the Gospel of John, who records an eyewitness account of what it is like to be with Jesus. If you want to know what is it like to be near him, to hang out with him, John records this account to show us what it was like to be with Jesus. John chapter 2 Uh, Verses 1 through 11. Let me read it for uh, you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it or you can listen. I'd like to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to spend some time thinking about it together. Here's what John writes On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory And his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we opened this service singing the words, Speak, O Lord. That is our prayer, especially now as we turn to your word, because we know that you speak especially through your word. Lord, you know every heart in this room, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak a word to each of us in season through your word and through your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This is the first miracle that John records, this miracle at the wedding in Cana. John, you notice, calls these miracles signs um, because he is saying that Jesus' miracles were not just random magic tricks. It was not just a a display of raw power is not, you know, to win friends and influence people, not just to kind of show off. No, these miracles are purposeful. They are meant to point to a greater reality. So, for example, if you're driving down the road and you see a sign by the side of the road, slippery road ahead, that's pointing to a reality to come that you should prepare for. In the same way, John presents these miracles as signs that are meant to point to a greater reality, a richer reality. 
of Jesus. Um, John says that this miracle at the wedding of Cana is the first sign that revealed his glory. So I thought on a standalone week, maybe it'd be great to, to look at a, the first of the uh, seven signs that John uh, will tell about. But this particular one, this, this word first could also be translated as primary because I think there's, there's something primary about this sign, something fundamental about, about it, what it's communicating about Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people these days who think of Jesus as kind of a killjoy. He's the one who tells you all the things you can't do and kind of cramps your style. And people will say, you know, look at the Gospels. It never says that Jesus laughed. I mean, the, the, uh, the Bible calls him the man of sorrows. And, and yes, Jesus was a man of sorrows, but John too shows us that he was also a man of great joy. This wedding at Cana shows us, I think, that Jesus comes to bring us deep joy. This is a sign. This is not just a show-off miracle. It's a sign pointing to deeper realities, and I think it points to a deeper joy. And so we should expect it to point to greater realities. And so I, what I want to do is, in the time that we have, point out uh, three joys that Jesus brings us, each deeper and richer than the last. The first joy is this. It's the joy of God's provision. There are not many times that I think about going back to the first century. I think life was a lot more inconvenient then than, than now. But I might choose to go back for a first century wedding. Because weddings were great celebrations, even bigger than they are now, at least in terms of length. Because weddings in those days commonly lasted a week long. I mean, think of that. that that's a lot of food, that's a lot of wine, that's a lot of celebration, and a lot of time off work. So, you know, who's ready to get in a time machine and go back? Um, weddings were, were these glorious events, and this wedding must have been a, a family event for Jesus because his mother is there, his, his disciples are there. It must have been a relative. They're, they're not crashing a wedding. They were invited. They were there because they were invited. It must have been a family event. And at this wedding, a crisis takes place. It's not like the bride forgot her veil. It's not that the groom faints. No, it's the one runs out. And you need to know this about the first century. That was considered a major social faux pas. That was a moment of great personal embarrassment for the host and shame. And some commentators suggest that, that when this happened, it could leave you open to being sued. Like if you didn't provide enough wedding, uh, wine at the wedding, people could sue you for that. So it's a serious e- event. And, and Mary must have been organizing or, or helping or catering in, in such a way that she was the first to find out when the wine runs out, and she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. And we don't know, John doesn't tell us exactly how she, what the inflections were when she said this. You know, we don't know whether she said to Jesus, you know, they've run out of wine, and you need to do something and because I'm your mother. You know, we, we, and we don't know what Mary was expecting when she asked Jesus. There, there are no indications that Jesus did miracles as a child that she was trying to call upon. Uh, some commentators suggest that um, by this point in time, um, uh, Joseph might have passed away because he's not mentioned anymore. And so Mary might have been a single mother who had to lean on her oldest son for lots of things. And, and maybe in this sense, she was saying, Jesus, they have no more. Why can you do something? The first surprise of this passage is how Jesus responds. When Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine, Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? If you're wondering, that is as abrupt as it sounds. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly rude, but it's not exactly the way you'd expect Jesus to address his mother. Let me put it this way. Jesus is not modeling how to honor your parents in this passage. 
you know, uh, the students are all here, here with us. You know, next time your mother asks you to clean your room, say, or help set up the table, I would not recommend responding, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> that will not end well. So, you know, why does Jesus respond this way? It, it is. There's a, there's a little bit of uh, rebuke here. There's a little bit of correction here. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. It would have been challenging to be the mother of the Son of God because, you know, at some point you would realize that this is not going to be a mother-son relationship forever. I mean, here's Mary. She cared for Jesus as a baby. She wiped his nose. She took care of him. She fed him. You know, did all these things a mother does for a son. But at some point she knew the time would come when she can't say to him, you have to do this because I'm your mother. Apparently that time had come. And Jesus is, is... is distancing himself from his own mother just a little bit so that Mary cannot expect him to do something because she's his mother. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come as a reference to his death. Jesus knew his crucifixion was coming even at a wedding banquet. He was thinking about that in a few years. That's coming. He's already thinking about that moment. And so he says to his mother, essentially, I'm not ready to make myself known, which would lead to my death. It would hasten the the crucifixion. And that's on your timetable. It's not my timetable. And so he says, "Uh, my time has not yet come. Look at how Mary responds. It's with great humility and faith. She doesn't say, you know, how dare you speak to me that way? I'm, I'm your mother. I look, look at all the things I've done for you. She doesn't respond that way. It, it must have been hard for Mary to hear Jesus respond to her this way. It was, it was humbling. And yet Mary responds with very little ego. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. And a very profound but switch has, has just happened. Mary is approaching Jesus now as a believer and not as his mother. And Jesus responds by providing miraculously. He, he turns water into wine. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not um, tongue-in-cheek here. It's not like the servants brought water to the master of the banquet and they said, you know, taste the new wine, wink, wink, and the masters then drink the water and say, wow, you saved the best wine till now, wink, wink. It's not, it's not a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. It's, it's not that there was wine left over and they just diluted it with water and made it go farther. No, John clearly says Jesus made a, done, did a miracle here. He turned the water into wine, and he, he does it abundantly. Now, look at the scope of this. I mean, there's six water jars, we're told. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus is making 120, 180 gallons of wine. You do the math. I mean, this is an extraordinary amount of wine. This is, this is over and abundant, overflowing for a, for a large event. And, and it's not just any wine. It's wine of the best quality. And so the master of the banquet pays unwitting witness to Jesus' miracle when he says, you've saved the best wine until now. Most people don't do this. Jesus provides miraculously and abundantly, and he provides practically. I mean, don't miss this. The reason why Jesus does this, it's not, again, not to show off, it's, it's to meet a personal need, a personal crisis, a, a, a moment of personal shame. Jesus, in other words, is glad. He knows and cares about our, our needs and is glad to meet us there, even when it's social embarrassment. That's what this is, and Jesus cares about that, and he, he provides practically, and then he provides quietly. Isn't it interesting that only Jesus' mother and the servants and the disciples know 
what Jesus did? I mean, it's unnoticed by most. It's a joy of God's provision. Jesus provides miraculously and abundantly, but most of the guests don't see it. They, they all drink the wine, but they have no idea where it comes from. And I know God has provided for you wonderfully in a new building, and, and it's very, very clear, you know, God provided this, this new building, but are there moments in life when God provides choice wine for us and we don't see? We drink the wine, but it, we don't know where it comes from. God, God, you know, might provide for you a wonderful job opportunity, or this incredible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity falls into your lap without you doing anything about it. Or, or your life just seems to come together, or... Or as simple as you, you have three meals on the table every day and you don't struggle, you don't wonder about where your next food is going to come from. All God's provisions, but sometimes we don't take a moment to acknowledge where it comes from. Sometimes I don't think we can see how God provides until we look back. You know, I think about Joshua. At the end of his life, Joshua was bidding farewell to the leaders. And he says, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. That's Joshua to the people at the end. But how about in the middle? Do you think they were as confident of that in the middle? When they had to face defeats and they experienced hardship, do you think they, they wondered whether God was going to provide for them? I think so. They were humans like us, and yet sometimes when you look back, you can see most clearly how God has provided for us. Friends, I think we need to look to God to provide for this simple reason. The wine will always run out. You know, I don't know what you're looking to right now for your joy and for your satisfaction in life, whether it's travel or whether it's your career or, or your bank account or your money or your, your pleasure. I don't know what it is, but the wine always runs out. That's what you're looking to for your joy. And if that's you today, if the wine is running out in your life, it's an invitation to come to Jesus. It's important how you come. We, we don't come presuming on privilege. We don't come and saying, you know, because I'm your, I'm your buddy, Jesus, and, and I've been to church all these years. You need to just do this for me. No, coming to Jesus means coming in humility, doing what he says, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, how much sense did it make to the, the servants when Jesus said, you know, fill the jars with water? I mean, some of them could have said, you know, and? Jesus, we need, we need more wine. We don't need, we need more water. How, how is this going to work? They don't say that. They, they simply obey. They do what he says. And my friends, this is the way that we experience the joy of God's provision, by obedience, by doing what he says. See, if you only do what he says when you happen to agree, with what he says. That's not true humility. That's not true submission. That's just you happen to agree, but you'll, you're still the authority. No, submission and obedience is doing what he says, even when you don't understand fully why that is. And Sinclair Ferguson adds, if you're saying to Jesus, why aren't you doing something now? It's your inner mother coming out. You're still trying to take control of the situation. Faith doesn't say that. Faith doesn't say, humble faith doesn't say, why don't you do something now, God? You need to fit into my plans now. No, humble faith says, no, God, I'll fit into your plans. And I'll do what you say. And that leads the joy of God's provision. Secondly, second joy of this passage is the joy of God's cleansing. And I just want you to take note of something that I think is significant. Look at the way Jesus provides 
wine. Where, what water he turns into wine. He doesn't take water from the well. That would be the place you might expect him to like, there's a lot of water there and I'll turn that into wine. He doesn't do that. He goes to the six stone water jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. This is the water that would be used at an event like a wedding. There would be a lot of need for hand washing and washing the utensils. I mean, big banquet. There's a lot of dishes that need to be, be washed. And that's what this is for. And it represented the Jewish laws of ceremonial washing. And if you understand where these came from, read the book of Leviticus, which are filled with, you know, all sorts of laws about clean and unclean. You know, in in Leviticus, you learn that certain things make you unclean, you know, certain foods, um, certain bodily discharges, um, you know, strange things like mildew in the wall makes you unclean. And, And then there are also things that will make you clean. uh, certain sacrifices, certain ritual washings would make you clean. And you say to yourself, I've said to myself, this is very strange. This is a very strange world. If you're doing your read through the Bible in a year and you start in Genesis and you gather up some steam and you're reading through Genesis and you get the great stories of of, uh, uh, Joseph and, and, and so on, and then you come into Leviticus and you come to a screeching halt because it's strange. All these laws about clean and unclean. But I suggest to you that we care just as much about being clean and unclean. Let me just suggest a few vignettes from our modern-day life. I mean, so if you're a mom and you're hosting a play date, and you find out that the child that's supposed to come over just came down with the stomach flu, you know, what are you thinking in your mind? Like, can we reschedule? Because I, you know, I don't really want the stomach bug in my house because it's clean right now, or... I know a group at this size, there's got to be a, a, a few germaphobes um, here where you have a certain view of life. I mean, every surface you see has germs on it. You know, the door handles, you know, uh, shaking people's hand is great, but then you want to reach for your hand sanitizer and sanitize. And, and we care about being clean and unclean. Maybe not all of you are germaphobes. Maybe you can relate to this. If you're at the dentist, and you're in the chair, and the dentist comes in, and he's eating Cheetos out of a bag, and his fingers are all cheesy, and he comes right over the chair, and he picks up the utensils and says, now open up, let's have a look. Now, what are you going to say? You're going to say, no, you need to wash your hands first. We, we do care about clean and unclean, and it's actually very important to us. And God cares about clean and unclean. And that, I think, is the whole point of Leviticus. It's not that we need to know the origin of every last law. Some things are lost in antiquity, but the overall point is clear of Leviticus, that God is holy and he's pure, and that he wants us to be holy and pure. And guess what? It involves every area of our lives. It's a picture of Leviticus. It it involves where we go and and what we do and what we come into contact with. But, But here's the problem of the Old Testament. No matter how many laws you keep, no matter how many ritual cleansings you go through, and we all develop a few of our own, I think, I can't make you clean. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have an ambition to power, and they're willing to do anything and climb over anybody on the way to the top. And so sure enough, they commit murders of a lot of people on the way to the top. And they, they, they murder King Duncan and others. And in that famous sleepwalking scene, remember Lady Beth is racked with guilt and she's sleepwalking. And, and what is, she's trying to wash her hands in her sleep. And, and what is she saying? Out, damn spot, out, I say. Who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? 
And then a little later, she says, here is the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. As a way of saying, no matter how hard she tries, she cannot get rid of the stain of sin in her life. Can anyone cleanse the human soul of guilt and shame from sin? You know, Gil says, I did something wrong there. Shame says, because of everything I've done, I am wrong. And we struggle with both. Can anyone cleanse us from the stain of the guilt and shame of sin? And Jesus says, I can when he takes the water from the ceremonial jars and turns it into wine, you know what he's saying? He's saying the fulfillment of Leviticus, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament taught about clean and unclean is fulfilled in me. All those sacrifices and all those ritual washings are fulfilled in me. I am the superior and better washing from sin. I'm the one who can take the water of Judaism and turn it into the wine of Christianity. And so when the master says, you have saved the best wine until now, he's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the best wine saved until now, the one who can cleanse us from sins once and for all. He is the one who brings that deep internal cleansing, not through the blood of bulls and goats and not through ritual washings, but through his blood shed on the cross. Cleanses us from the guilt and shame of sin. William Cooper puts it this way, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. It's the joy of God's cleansing when we're struggling with the guilt and shame of sin, and who can cleanse me from this? Jesus says, I can. And we can discover the joy of his cleansing. Those are the first two joys of this passage, the joy of God's provision and the joy of God's cleansing. And then third and last, the joy of God's coming kingdom. When John reports how Jesus turned the water into wine... I don't think that he could miss the biblical themes, the underlining themes of this moment because um, that that this miracle picks up on. Because John, I don't think he's just writing an eyewitness report of what Jesus has done. It is that, but I think he's he's reflecting on it theologically. And that's why we we get him. So how he begins his gospel, remember? In the beginning was the word. As a clear reference to Genesis that begins in the beginning, God. And so what John is saying, he's reflecting theologically in the life of Jesus. And what he's saying at the beginning of his gospel is Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. And so when John gets to wine and wedding and and bridegrooms, I think he's seeing it against the backdrop of the Old Testament. So wine in the Old Testament, for example, was a symbol of joy and celebration and blessing. That's why the Old Testament prophets use this image to picture God's renewal of his people. When God restores his people, Amos 9, use the image of new wine dripping from the mountains and flowing down from the hills. It's a a wonderful image. Isaiah 25 describes it this way. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
You, you see this, this symbol, you're picking up on it. The wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy and celebration and blessing. And then in the Old Testament, God is described as a husband to his people. God says in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband. That, that, that's why the prophets, when the people of God were unfaithful to him and rebelled against him, what did they challenge them with? What did they, they, they uh, charge them with? It was adultery. Spiritual adultery because God is your husband and you, by your rebellion, you're committing nothing less than adultery against your husband. And so all these Old Testament themes of wine and wedding and bridegroom coalesce and culminate in Jesus at the the wedding of Cana. And so when he turns water into wine, it's not just to meet a practical need. It's not just to replace the water of, of ceremonial cleansing. It is to announce that in him, the promised wine of the kingdom has arrived. In Jesus, the joy and the blessing and the feasting of God's kingdom has arrived. As one who supplies wine for the wedding, Jesus is the true bridegroom. You remember when people came to him and said, you know, why why don't your your disciples fast like everyone else is fasting? You remember what he said? He said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Jesus considered himself the bridegroom. He is a true bridegroom who pro- provides the wine of the kingdom. And I think at a deep, at a deep level, this sign points to that. And John sees that, wants us to, to see that. And that means two things. If Jesus is our bridegroom, it means how deeply Jesus loves you. Conducted a number of weddings, and as a pastor, I, I get a privileged spot. I get to stand right next to the groom, and I get first row seats at that moment when, when everyone stands up and the doors open and the, the bride steps into the sanctuary and all her beauty and radiance having prepared for this day. And I can practically hear the, the bridegroom's heart beating out loud as he yearns for his bride and catches sight of her beauty. I'm right there. My friends, if Jesus is your bridegroom, That's how he feels about you. That is how he is ravished by you. He he loves you deeply if he is your bridegroom. And then it means that he's going to host a great wedding banquet to come. Revelation 19 describes the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. It's what awaits you if you're a believer. The wedding banquet to end all wedding banquets. It is the joy of God's kingdom. This is the image that communicates God's coming kingdom. My wife uh, works for a company, and and, uh, last year, I think it was, she was at a management training, and she passed this along to me. This management principle that was offered up on a training day, it was this phrase, um, if your memories are bigger than your dreams, you're heading toward the grave. If your memories are bigger than your dreams, you're heading toward the grave. And it was a management principle. It was like, you know, telling the employees to dream big dreams for the company and, and move forward in the face of bright future. Don't think about what's, what, what all is behind. You know, dream big dreams. And, you know, it's a great principle. It's a, it's a good thought. But the reality is we all get to the point where our memories are bigger than our dreams. We will all get to the point where most of our life is behind us, not ahead of us. Here's just a quick example. Think about Muhammad Ali. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about, and some of you will. He, he died in 2016 at the age of 74. 
at his pinnacle. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. He called himself the greatest with a face so pretty it proves I'm the king. And if you were uh, around as an adult, you remember he said things like this. He, he, uh, he is never at a loss for words. 1993 Associated Press survey uh, reported that 97% of U.S. citizens at that time, over 12, named Muhammad Ali and Babe Ruth as the most recognizable athletes that are alive in America. That was his pinnacle, his, his moment of glory. But by the end of his life, Muhammad Ali, that once great boxer, never at a loss for words, was frail, unsteady on his feet. He could barely walk. He could not talk. It's a picture of the natural course of things. We all naturally decline. If it's summer right now in your life, inevitably it will be fall and eventually winter. We all come to the point where our memories are bigger than our dreams, where we find ourselves looking back more than we are looking forward. And when Jesus turned water into wine, he said nothing less than his demonstration of the power to reverse nature itself. Nature says that life is a slow decline towards death, and Jesus says, I can reverse that. I have the power to reverse nature itself. I can bring life even after death has taken it away. I can bring life. I can turn water into one. I can reverse the power of nature itself. And so what that means is no matter how old you are or how much health you've lost or how much life is past you, the best is yet to come. There is a moment of great beauty and power awaiting us when we will see our bridegroom face to face and then we'll begin the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. The joy of God's coming kingdom. Which means that all the best things in this life are penultimate. The best marriages, the best travel, the best pleasure. Enjoy them if you have them. They're, they're God's good gifts, but don't be crushed if you don't. Because the true marriage is yet to come. The true joy, the true celebration, the true feast is yet to come, which means, my friends, we can have a fundamentally hopeful view of life, no matter how much the political waters swirl and the fears that are rife in our, our culture, we can have a fundamentally hopeful view of life. No matter how old you are, no matter what you've experienced, no matter how much you've declined, no matter how much you find yourself wistfully looking back, the best is yet to come. Jesus comes to bring us the joy of his kingdom, the joy of God's provision, the joy of his cleansing, and the joy of his kingdom. Would you believe in Jesus this morning? The reason why John writes it, he says, these things I have written that you might believe, that you might believe in Jesus. Would you do that? And then would you do what he says? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first sign by which Jesus revealed his glory to us, that he can bring us the joy of the kingdom, that he can give us a taste now of the joy to come. Lord, we recognize that it comes through surrender and obedience, from believing in him and doing what he says. We recognize that that is a doorway to taste the joy to come. 
Help us to do that. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.